You are listening to Sing Amen, Ministering Through Music. I am Jennifer Kerr-Budziak, and welcome to our podcast. As promised, this episode of our podcast features a conversation with conductor, teacher, and author Dr. James Jordan. It would take the whole episode just to list everything he does or has done in the world of choral music and education, so I'll just refer you to the GIA website at giamusic.com, where he has an author page and you can check it all out. For the moment, I'll just say that he is a professor of choral music at Westminster Choir College and conductor of the critically acclaimed Westminster Williamson Voices. Uh, He is the editor of GIA's Evoking Sound Choral Music series, which we heard a small sampling of in our last podcast episode. So go back and check that out if you missed it. He is the author of a continually expanding collection of books and resources about music making and conducting, and he's just a generally amazing human being. So a brief commercial here. Dr. Jordan will also be a featured presenter once again at GIA's Fall Institute, which will be held October 11th through 13th at Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago. He will be presenting there along with Michael Jonkas, Olayelo, David Haas, Lori True, Lynn Eustace, um, lots of other amazing artists and teachers. So if you have not yet registered, please consider it. You can find all the details at the GIA Institute website, which is just institute.giamusic.com. Please check it out. I will also put a link to it on the Sing Amen website, as well as links to many of the books and resources that we'll talk about in our conversation. So on to our podcast for today. Just a note before we get into it, Dr. Jordan obviously approaches his art, the whole premise that honesty and authenticity and love are crucial to beauty in music making. He approaches these from the perspective of choral conducting, which is, of course, his world. But these ideas go way beyond choral singing and music direction, and I hope musicians of all stripes will find something to take away, because a lot of what Dr. Jordan talks about here in the context of choral singing applies to the work we do in our churches, not just with our music ministers, but also with our assemblies as we help them find their voices and their place in the shared music making. And one other final note, the singamen.giamusic.com website will always have information about any music we play on the podcast, but I wanted to make special mention of the beautiful piece of music that we will hear in full at the conclusion of this episode. As I Walk the Silent Earth was composed by Westminster graduate Thomas Lavoy, and it is heard here in a recording by the Westminster Williamson Voices, conducted by Dr. Jordan, from the CD Hole in the Sky, which is also linked on the website. In the composer's notes in the octavo, Dr. Lavoy says of the piece, This piece is my attempt to represent musically the familial bonds that we as choristers form with one another when we sing together. These ties are strengthened by our mutual love of song and help to keep our minds and spirits safe in times of darkness. And while that quote from the composer sounds a lot like the ideal choral experience, it also sounds to me an awful lot like a really good description of the reign of God. So with that, let's move into our podcast and a conversation about how to create and nurture those bonds, bonds of life and breath and trust with Dr. James Jordan. So I am here today with Dr. James Jordan, and thank you for coming to GIA and taking time. It's great to be here, always. I was hoping that we could spend some time talking about just your overall philosophy for approaching music making and music making with ensembles. Uh, I know that the choral world in general knows who you are and knows what you do, and I would love for the chance for some of the sacred musicians who are working out in parishes with little choirs to just kind of 
get to know you and what you're about. For me, when I read The Musician's Soul, which was, I think it was 1999, I read it a few years later. Um, in fact, I have memories of sitting there late at night trying to get my babies to go to sleep, and I was sitting there in the glider with The Musician's Soul, and it got me through some very long nights. But it also, it changed, it kind of changed everything for me about the way I think of myself, not just as a conductor, but just an artist and a musician and a human being. And it was probably the first time I had read something from, especially someone with academic credentials saying, no, really what's at the core of all this, it's not about just about technique and gesture and theory and analysis. It's about love and care and something that goes much deeper. And that you were able to give me, give us permission to look into that was just, it opened this huge door for me. And it's been a really, really wonderful thing for me. So thank you. Well, it's... Um right on all points. I, I'm always um, a bit humbled when people come up to me and talk to me about that book and the influence it's had on them. Because truth be told, I kind of wrote that book for myself to pull my thoughts together at a difficult time in my career where I think everybody questions not only themselves, but what they do, their job. Um, you know, and those thoughts come on a particularly bad day, a particularly bad rehearsal. What's interesting about The Musician's Soul and the contents of it is, I think, that was written in my first three years at Westminster. And I think I've spent the last 27 years proving the thesis. Um, I think it's one thing to say something in print. But what always worried me at a certain point in my career was, well, he writes very well about this stuff, but does he do it? Fast forward to today, the thing I love most is doing recordings because I think that in itself is, is is instructional. I think what's important for listeners to understand that I don't think it's a, about the level of the choir at all. I don't think it's about their technical expertise. I don't think it's about any of that. All, But as you know, I have tons of books on vocal technique and rehearsal technique. I think there are things that you can learn to be more efficient I think it's a question of efficiency. So all my books with learning theory, I think I do, I'm opinionated about how you teach a choir. But if you push all that aside, you know, why do people come and sing for any of us? And I think one of the things I don't say in the book, but I say in every keynote address on the book is I say, whether you realize it or not, people come and sing in your choir because of you. You might want to think it's because of your musical expertise, because every church choir will judge you. We all know that we've all had them. <laughs> Surely not. But, but, but it, it, they come because of you. There's something about you, about not your personality, but your, your real human core that, that resonates with them. And they sing in these choirs because of that. A lot of them will say they're there to give their service back to the church. I don't question that at all. But I do believe also the power of a community of people singing together. There is a, the new book I think is a, a kind of a companion that's coming out in a few months. It's called The Moral Acoustics of Sound or The Moral Acoustics Singular of Sound. And not morality meaning good and evil, but that when people get together and sing in any choir at any level, there's something that happens to the sound that is not technical. It's human. 
and you can hear it. You can hear it in the color of the sound. You can hear it in their intonation. I think intonation's overrated. If a choir sings out of tune, I think the first thing that should be approached is there any honesty in the, in the room. I think intonation problems are caused sometimes because of context, but sometimes because there's just no connection either with them personally or between and among the people that they're singing with and maybe between the conductor and the ensemble. I do think there is this. We now know neurologically we all send out wireless. There's magnetic fields that come out from each one of us. In fact, you walk down the street and you're actually picking up neurons from the person that just walked past you unknowingly. But those times when we sit in an ensemble and we feel goosebumps or we feel warm, that's just not emotional. That's neurological. You are picking up stuff from people around you. And for me, that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to create in the room. I'm trying to create. The term I use in the new book is enfleshment. That term which I heard an Episcopal priest in Princeton use in a wedding ceremony. And I'd never heard the term. And the term enfleshment, to, to make of flesh, to, to make sound of flesh, to just the idea that there is something human going on when people are in a room, I think is kind of at the core of, you know, where I've come to. I've been to Latin masses where the moral acoustic was four people in a little skull singing Gregorian chant, and there was something magical because of the connection that chant brings. And then, you know, I do think that for me, also one of the things I want to say to everybody listening is that for me, the big Dorian was chant. My choir warms up on chant. They read four-line notation. Any church choir can learn it by rote. To be able to sing in unison with others and to listen to others and to breathe with others is the foundation of all musicianship and, I think, human expression. So that was a huge doorway, massive doorway. So that whole discovering chant book was... Because I had no idea how to teach it. I didn't even know how it sounded. I didn't know how to read it. Yes, and I have a PhD. Um, weakness of my education. Uh, but I tried to make it right by coming up with a pedagogy that helps people to be musical. I mean, the bottom line of chant also, it's not only the community, but it's how is one musical? How do you make a choir musical? What is that? Is it being, people said, let's be expressive. I'm not quite so sure. I think it's observing the architecture of the sound and singing appropriately. That's a subject of a longer discussion, however. And it kind of takes away sort of, I don't want to necessarily say that rhythm and meter and harmony are crutches, but they're things that once you take that away and you're distilled down to just this very, very basic element of what the sound can be, you can't lean on no, and, the, and on the, the rhythm the or the pulse is, or the chords. Or, I don't know. No, the, you're it, totally right. Yeah. The, the, my other hat is a music psychologist. I think people kind of confuse the fact that rhythm is the diction and they commingle them. They're not. Rhythm is apparent in any group of people singing something together. You don't have to hyperload it or add extra weight or accent. It's not text stress, it's text emphasis. And the other door that's open because of chant is, I know this is radical and take me to radical prison, <laughs> but uh, I came up with this, this incredible assumption. So at Westminster, we have 35 voice teachers. And what do they learn in the studios? Legato. What don't we teach in choirs? Legato. Legato. I mean, a person listening to Bette Midler, she's singing legato. I hate to break the news to all of you. <laughs> and the old assumption that, oh, to hear the text in the church, we have to make the consonants faster and quicker. That's a lie, because if you do it fast and quick, they drop off. 
don't you need to elongate the consonant so that it has a longer life in the acoustic? Which is what great legato singing is. So, and if it's articulated, I lengthen the consonants. But that's another vehicle. By, by taking away the language and the legato of the line, you do rob them of any human expression. I think the simple thing for church choirs is get them to understand legato. Now, I, I caution everybody listening. We all think we understand. I say legato to you, and you know what I mean. But you also have to tell them what you mean by that, because that's a musical term that has a lot of import. Legato is, I think, key to all of this. It also means such different things depending on what instrument you play, too. I mean, when and I for singers, for and singers, for singers, yeah. it has a it it carries musical idea. I don't think anybody can carry any musical idea when you're performing a butcher act on consonants. I just don't think I I, I don't know how you can do this. Make an arc. I have to remember people can't see me. That they, you can't make an arc in a line if you're cutting it up like I call it sausaging. Stop sausaging. Did you, did you use the word Lederwurst or something? Lederwurst. Lederwurst. I that, loved that, I, that. Yeah, but I robbed that from Richard Miller's book. It's beautiful because it also is self-indulgent. It is, it is about me. It's me music. It's not they music or our music. It becomes very self-indulgent. And it's an effect that has no real honest human communicative value. I don't know. Yeah, Lederwurst. Lederwurst. I like that. I have a presentation I do on diction. And I went online and just looked, I googled sausage. And I put up every picture of sausages I could find. <laughs> Link sausages. Because, like, there was one where there were four rows of sausages, mm -hmm. okay, vertically aligned. And I said, this is homophonic sausaging. I mean, I, it just, because that's how some music sounds to me. You get, and that's running counter. And it's uncomfortable to sing. And it's not fun to sing that way. Fun meaning artistically integrous. That's a word. One thing just to, to point out that, you know, all of these things you're saying, you know, if anybody is listening to this going, oh, well, you know, I don't have a gorgeous choir like the Westminster Voices, and I have this little church choir with eight altos, 14 sopranos, two tenors, and one bass who travels a care. lot for work. I don't care. You know, what does this have to do with me? I can't do that. So, but what is everything you're saying? I, they can happen. They can, yeah. Yeah, I think the other thing that, that we've lost, especially in the time we live in, um, it's becoming a rare commodity, and that's the thing about trust. If you don't believe and trust the people to make a beautiful sound, they simply won't. You know, if, if you're worried about that they can't do this and they can't do that or they don't have the skills, well, then I think the problem's with you. I think if you, the best tip I ever get, if you stand there and just love them and care for the sound, it will be stunning. It will be. I don't care about their vocal technique level, and no matter what they're singing, it can be very, very beautiful. But it, I, I think it's a matter of trust. Can I quote you to you for a sec? Yes, this is, um, quote this, me again, to this me. Is from a, this, I think this is just from the introduction of Musician Soul. I just love this. When you said, the journey of this book is about one idea, you must trust, believe, and love yourself. Music making is constructed of correct notes, correct rhythms, dynamics, and articulation, but... The mortar of music is human trust of self and others, believe in self and others, and love of self. And we sometimes, I, yeah, it's it's a lot easier to just come and do your job. And well, it seems like it's easier to just kind of come do your job, teach the notes, blame other people for not being able to do it. But it's actually, it gets really hard to do that. It sort of, it grates on the soul after yeah, a while. Yeah, it does. And I think you just have to learn how to relax in front of people. I, I think all of what I've learned about conducting is when I relaxed enough to trust the people in front of me, incredible music came out of them. And I had, I had nothing to do with it other than stand there. 
and breathe. I also think that anybody having a, a church choir, if all you do is get them to breathe together, their music making will improve 50-fold. The act of breathing together carries information that we don't even understand. You know, before you speak to someone, you breathe. And everything is uploaded in that breath to what they're going to speak or what we're going to speak. And so if we do that in language and we do that in day-to-day -day communication, why don't we do it as conductors? And why do we not understand the power or the content of human breath? And breathing in front of people and with people is an incredible community task. It's incredible. And they, they, they need to know that breath is important. It's not about making the first sound. The first sound is made in the way you all breathe together. Choirs are communities of people. They've got to breathe together. For me, that's it. That's the end. Be all. I don't care if they're even looking at me, but they must breathe with me. And you can sense that. Mm -hmm. I can have somebody sitting to my far right, and they can sense when I breathe. Just can't. Throughout all your books, and you're the, you know, the musician soul and the moral acoustic, which are you know, more about the, I guess, the, the theory and the thoughtfulness. And then, you know, in case people listening don't know, so many of the books in between, the musician's breath. Correct. Um, you know, musician's the spirit, spirit, the musician's the walk. walk. Yes. Um, that they, they begin to tie, or they begin, they go very far they tying just, these ideas they, in they add to, to the reality and the, the practicals. They add so. to the argument. Yeah. Every chapter of every book you write starts with this wonderful assortment of quotes from all over the place. I mean, you know, you, you have Nadia Boulanger on humility and joy. I think you have Bob Dylan about his first apartment. You have Thomas Hampson talking about golf and Einstein and Teresa of Avila and Pablo Casal. You, I, I think single-handedly you and your books have led to my Amazon wish list getting completely out of control because I keep adding to it. Um, where, do, where do you find all those? Are, do, I, are you just a voracious reader? Um, I am a, a forager. And by that I mean I take leads and I either see something or I hear about it or things as dumb as, I'm not kidding you, I will be in a bookstore and I'll pick up a book and I'll open it and right on that page is something I need to use. <laughs> I know it sounds weird and I know that sounds like I'm making stuff up, but I'm not. I do tell, I, I will say this, every book I have ever quoted in any of my books I own. So I have on the second floor of our house the most wonderful little library. So that when I write another book, you'll also notice that I revisit authors that I've had before. Yes. Maybe same quotes, maybe different. Sometimes I recycle a quote because I really want people to know it. And, but that's all in my personal library. So I just go and pull off the shelf. The reason I do that is that I, I think we as musicians are very, literate people. We are also very busy people. And part of my education, if you want to ask me what other degrees I wish I would have, oh, a poetry degree in, in interpretive interpretation of poetry. I'd like a degree in English literature. I'd like a degree. I don't have time. So what I'm doing in those quotes is, number one, they're my inspiration always for the chapter that follows. I can't just kind of sit down and start a chapter. I, it's sort of like a designer having fabric on the wall or paint colors. It's my inspiration board. I do tell my students that you're very kind if you think what I write is good, but really the better writing is in the quotes. The reason I put them in, I think a lot of authors will find a quote like that and then paraphrase it themselves and call it their own. I don't do that. If somebody said it right, it needs to be written as was said. And then I basically improvise off that. That's my, that's my way of writing. I also think that if you, so you took, you took the hint. If you see it and say, well, that's a great quote. I think I want to read that book. Mission accomplished. 
The gathering of quotes for me is really important because I think it there's people who have thought about things that I don't that that can save me time and help my own thought process clarify. And yes, there are some favorites, but all of us need inspiration. This started when I taught Lewisburg High School because I my first year was horrendous. I mean, it wasn't to them it wasn't horrendous. They all speak great things about it, but I came away each day thinking I don't know what I'm doing. And I would go into my office kind of depressed. And what I started to do is find quotes and stick them up on a cork board in front of my desk mm. to put myself back together after a bad day. That's where this all started. They were to help me. And those quotes are to help everybody. I mean, that's just what they are. Can I, um, can I ask you something about Elaine Brown? You can. There, there's one. I you mean, you sure speak can. about her a lot. I mean, I guess we all sort of have our teachers. You know, we have many teachers. But then oh. there's that teacher that you say, you know, she was my teacher. Yes, and she was yours, she right? She was my teacher, without question. Yeah. Um, there's this, and this is something that I know that, you know, that this is basically me being self-indulgent because this is something that I've struggled with so often with ensembles. Um, it's a quote from one of the later chapters uh, where she talks about, she says, so many times I've looked at my choir and thought there must be a magic key someplace to unlock this paralysis of spirit. When people reach the end of the line, the end is very sad. No hope, no forward motion, just utter paralysis. All of us have faced this in our groups. The singers try to look like they should, bless their hearts. They try, but they've missed something. You look at their faces and you know how much growth you need yourself. I know. I mean, I read that and I was like, oh yeah, been there so many times. Are you able to talk about that at all? What do you do? Well, I think... First of all, that passage uh, at the time, I literally took it off a VHS um, recording that we had at Westminster, which is now, if you if you purchase the book uh, Lighting a Candle, mm. published by GIA, that DVD and that speech is on there. It's the only thing we have of Elaine speaking, and it is powerful. Every church choir should just watch that. That will change them. I think all I've done in tribute to my, I think all we do is uh, pay it forward. And I think what I've tried to do with everything that I observe from Elaine, Elaine didn't talk a lot other than things like that, which I found in her notes. I used to think, I heard that speech when I was in her choirs, and I used to think it was improv. When I got to see her paper, she typed out everything. That speech was typed out. And she gave it hundreds of times. She had thought it through. Because it's very beautifully structured. It is. And the words chosen. But I think what I've tried to do with Elaine's stuff is try to put in the words what I felt and what I observed and what I heard happening around me. Because um, she was one of the greats of, 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 our, of not only the last generation, but of generations to come. And I don't want her teachings to be lost, but... This spontaneous, you know, people say, you know, you have to embody the music and you have to show it. Well, I, I think that's fake. I think that's kitsch. I think human expression is very deep. And I think where what that quote gets at is do your work on yourself. And when you do your work and if, if the music is in you, it will translate to the people in the room. And yes, if you're not doing that, they're going to struggle. You'll get the blank faces. You'll get the, the weird sounds and the wrong notes and the intonation doesn't make any sense. But if, there's, if, if you want to be with people, this, the music will reflect that. I mean, I tell that to my graduate students. Why do you want to do this? You, you should do it because you want to be with people. Can we talk a little bit about, and I think I'm saying the word right, mimesis? 
yeah, mimesis. Mimesis, mimesis yeah. yeah. Oh okay. God. Um, that, it sounds like that's kind that's of it. what you're. That's what you're getting getting at. That yeah. idea of it's one of those words that's just hard to define, well, no matter it, how much Plato you comes, read. It comes it, from it <laughs> comes from literary criticism uh, uh, and a whole kind of approach to the analysis of biblical passages by Rene Girard, but. To, to cut to the chase on what mimetics is, the biggest tool that I use and employ all the time is that when you hear a sound, you have to assume that you're going to want to hear a beautiful sound. And when it isn't beautiful, you need to monitor yourself and figure out what goes on in your own body and your own DNA. Some of us get testy and we get anxious or we get more energy or we get more insistent. And what, what I was told by Donald Sheehan is that at those moments when you hear sound, what you don't do is you don't judge it. And all you should do is you should listen to it and not analyze it. You should sit and just think and say to yourself, I love these people. I love being with them. That's what I think. The sound changes immediately. On days when I'm having a really bad day, like I just came from a bad meeting, or you're all twisted out of shape, or you're in a bad drive into school. When I feel that, I do self-monitor. When I start feeling like I'm going to say something really stupid or do <laughs> something really dumb, I stop. I do this in my rehearsal. Students who don't sing with me think I like, don't know what I'm doing because I'll stop. I'll let the room get quiet. And what I do actually is I kind of look over toward the altos and I'm thinking, if that was my daughter sitting there, how would I want her treated right now? Mm. And your whole world changes. You go to a place of love and care, and that's what—that's why we do this. M music binds us in a way that that words sometimes can't. But you have to let it do its magic. Do you know the funny thing I write about? In one of the, I forget where I write stuff, but <laughs> I do in the new book. Uh, Moral Acoustics, there's a chapter called, called Mysteries and Spells. And you know why? Well, you know, we have the Choral Institute at Oxford, and that, that is the land of Harry Potter. The building's the magic of the place, and there is a magic. The whole Harry Potter generation, what they understand better now than any of us is magic, and they believe in it because of those books. Well, what's the matter with musicians? There's magic. And so, in the Moral Acoustic book, I talk about this magic thing that happens. And I, I, I'm not going to explain the components of making magic. I don't have a, a Latin phrase that you can shake on the choir and this all happens. <laughs> but it is there. It is there. And if you don't believe it's there, it's not going to be there. That's what, I mean, that's the lesson of Harry Potter. That's the lesson of J.K. Rowling. Don't ever lose wonder. Don't ever lose the magic of, I mean, that, that's, that's the bottom line of those incredible books. And musicians need to pay attention. Yeah, and it, now that you've mentioned it, even in the Harry Potter books, I'm thinking of the whole business with the Patronus, that the magic only works if you believe in it and if it's authentic and coming from this very real, mm -hmm. deep place. Like, I remember, mm -hmm. I think you spoke about this in your um, one of your master classes. Mm -hmm. I don't have the quote, but you said that, like, the torso can't lie. Correct. Words can lie, faces, I, eyes I, can I, lie, I, the torso can never lie. Never lie. lie. And when you believe that, then you're going to start searching for truth within yourself instead of looking to your choir to provide you with some kind of meal of truth. Um, 
a truth is, truth can't be discussed. Truth just is. It exists in a place. It exists in a sound. I believe it exists in a sound. And I know a truthful sound when I hear it. I can tell you that. I know it when I hear it, and that's what I strive for. And usually the biggest impedance to that truthful sound is me. I'm in the way. I'm in the way. And so I think my, my job all these years has been to get out of the way, to find a way to be participating but humbly present. And I mean that. I know that sounds, that sounds a little bit idealistic, but for one to be humbly present in front of a choir makes, I think, makes the great music, the great conductors all have figured this out, whether they call it this or not. It's enfleshment in another way. Can I yeah, tell a sort of silly story about, like, way back, I was in my 20s in one of my first churches. This isn't even a choir story. This was, um, it was a Christmas morning. I, you know, we'd done midnight mass. I didn't have the heart to ask any of my song leaders to come back for the, the 7 a.m. mass on Christmas Day. And so it was just me and the piano and a microphone, which I hate doing, but, you know, wanted to just get things going. And by the end of mass, I was exhausted and my voice was completely cached. And I think I started playing Silent Night you know, for after communion. And I played the introduction and then quietly sang into the microphone. I did silent. And I backed away from the microphone. And this room full of early morning people started singing. And I didn't have to sing another note for the rest of it. But it was the moment when, when I started reading about that whole mimetic theory. I was like, wait, that was that silent night moment when I was 23 or whatever. And, and I would also say and to you, too that you didn't know any better, but you, when the sound started, you trusted it and you didn't jump back in, mm -hmm. which is the lesson for young conductors. They always want to control, jump back in. And sometimes it's, you know, to quote my former colleague at Westminster, Joe Flummerfeld, sometimes conducting is learning to conduct and when not to. I think it's about when not to, and you learned it that way. There are times when, when if you trust that they're going to carry on what you've I don't also don't think people understand human impulse, that what we are as conductors are impulsors in chief. We provide an impulse, and then we need to trust and let the impulse go and have its reaction. I think that's another key to conducting. Action, reaction, impulse, reaction. If you think you're a great musician and that's why you're doing it, you're, you're fooling yourself. In this business, yeah, you have to have ears, you have to listen, but I think that, that kind of work that you do, the inside work, the personal work, the thinking, the, the finding a quiet place, learning how to breathe in public is really important.
For more information, including details about the music you heard on today's podcast, please visit our website at singamen.giamusic.com. Sing Amen is produced and supported by GIA Publications.